0: Good morning, uh, thanks all very much for joining us. I'm Mike Green, the CEO and uh, a professor uh, uh, at the US Study Center, and we are really uh, delighted to welcome those of you here uh, in the hall in Canberra and those of you online to a discussion of the US midterm elections uh, and uh, the polling that the US Study Center just conducted in the United States, Australia, and Japan on attitudes towards the big challenges facing us in security, uh, trade, climate technology. Let me first um, begin uh, by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the ACT, the Ngunnawal people. And I pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. And for those joining us remotely, I further acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which you are on, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and future. This um, midterm election um, is a consequential one. In our survey, a significant majority of Australians Uh, and Japanese said that they thought this election was important to their country. And um, a significant number of Australians and Americans said they were a bit worried about the state of American democracy. Um, What we're going to do today is unpack uh, the midterm. It's an opportunity to do a number of things. We are going to um, brief you on our survey results, and there's a copy of the report here. It's not this is the tip of the iceberg. We actually have a lot more data for those who are interested, which we'll have up on the website, uh, or available for those um, who are truly uh, immersed in American politics. Um, But we'll we'll have uh, our colleagues, um, Jared Monshine and Victoria Cooper, who designed and led this survey, brief you on the top line results, some of which are reassuring, uh, some of which are surprising, um, we'll then um, uh, turn to a panel of um, U.S. Study Center experts um, uh, moderated by uh, Victoria Cooper and including Professor Peter Dean, uh, our Director of the Foreign Policy and Defense Program, Dr. Mia hammond Airy, the Director of Emerging Technology Program, and Dr. Peter Lee, who's a Research Fellow in Foreign Policy and Defense, to unpack some of the national security uh, implications of the survey. Um, I've been doing um, public opinion and elite uh, surveys um, on uh, the Indo-Pacific and in the Indo-Pacific for 20 years. <clears throat> um, polls are not predictive. Just because a large majority of Americans say that the Trans-Pacific Partnership is a good idea does not mean the United States will join the Trans-Pacific Partnership. But it does give you the beginning of a conversation about what's possible and what the, what the areas of friction might be um, in America's relationship with Australia, with Japan, with the region. So that National Security Pen- Panel will unpack some of those and, and, and what the survey suggests about the agenda for OSMEN and AUKUS and technology and um, the alliance in Australia. Um, I'll then um, invite uh, Jane Costen from the New York Times uh, to um, give some remarks and uh, answer your questions. I'll engage with a dialogue with her. Uh, Jane Koston is one of perhaps the best um, uh, observers and analysts of the American zeitgeist, of the American debate, of American political discourse, <clears throat> and will put in perspective what this moment in uh, history means for the United States um, as a democracy uh, and and our political discourse. Um, we will uh, then um, uh, turn over to uh, Jared and Ron Brownstein from The Atlantic, who's going to give us more of a uh, mechanical... Uh, almost um, sport <laughs> uh, framing of the election: who's up, who's down, what to look for, what this means for the horse race for twenty twenty four presidential election. So Jane will give us the the the, the spirit, and, and Ron will give us the 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 contest um, and what we should look for, and um, and then uh, Jared and, and and Victoria will wrap up with some some concluding thoughts about what we've heard during uh, during the day. So we're very excited to bring this to you. We um, we, uh, we're trying at the US Studies Center as much as possible to combine um, original research data analysis uh, with an open discourse about um, uh, the policy issues that we face, um, the direction of American democracy. Some of you have heard me quote um, Lord Carrington, the British Foreign Secretary in the 1980s, who during the Reagan administration was um, hosting a meeting of NATO foreign ministers on the European and Canadian side before meeting with um, the Americans. And they were all complaining. The Americans are too unilateralists. The Americans rely on nuclear weapons too much. The Americans rely on nuclear weapons not enough. Um, It went on and on. And then Lord Carrington reportedly turned to them all and said, yes, yes, everything you say about the Americans is true, but they're the only Americans we have. (laughs) Um, And that's sort of the philosophy for the center. Put it all on the table, good, bad, and ugly. Um, as Kim Beasley, when I first met him many years ago, as a young scholar said to me, America's not good, America's not bad, America is. <laughs> um, and therefore, um, for close allies and partners who broadly share our, our values and our strategic interests, um, learning how to interpret, analyze, and cooperate with um, uh, this, this country of mine is, um, is critical and critical for Americans. And in our survey, you'll see Americans think uh, more than ever before by a significant increase over the last two years that Australia makes us safer, makes Americans safer, and Australia's voice will matter. So it's important to us that Australians uh, at all levels are informed about and thinking about uh, the trajectories in the US and how to shape um, the alliance and Australia's interests. So let me, before I turn it over, though, to um, Jared and Victoria to run you through the survey, let me just say how honored we have to have Ambassador Yamagami of Japan joining us. Um, I just came back from Tokyo. Um, I met the foreign minister and, and other senior officials and politicians. Uh, was just as Prime Minister Kishida was meeting Prime Minister Albanese in Perth. Um, I have to say, Ambassador, people in the Foreign Ministry, in the in the Diet, were giddy. They were excited about what you're doing. They were excited about Australia. <clears throat> um, again and again, I was told um, Australia is the fastest-growing security and economic relationship strategically for Japan, and second only now to the United States, which is a credit to your good work, but also an enormous burden on you <laughs> to continue delivering. So if I could, uh, before we go into the survey, um, invite um, uh, Ambassador Yamagami to give us some framing remarks. We, we surveyed Americans and Australians, and this time Japanese because no three countries are more closely aligned uh, on the challenges we face. Ambassador, please. Uh, sure. Sure. Thank you.
1: Good morning to you, everybody. Uh, thank you, thank you, Mike, you know, for your kind introduction. Uh, let me make uh, you know a few comments uh, with regard to the you know uh, U.S. Study Center's recent opinion poll. Uh, I was uh, looking at uh, it, you know last night with a great degree of uh, interest. So perhaps not as a you know uh, incumbent Japanese ambassador to Australia, but. Uh, As a former think tanker of Japan Institute of International Affairs, I would like to provide you with some food for thought, uh, my points of observation. Uh, First, I think this opinion poll is quite timely and quite credible in the sense that it is reinforcing uh, that long-term trend of Australia's opinion with regard to its you know, security engagement in the Indo-Pacific uh, vis-à-vis the United States and you know, Japan. And uh, we have seen uh, increasing number of Australians have regarded China as not necessarily as economic partner but as security you know, threat. And uh, if you look at the Lowy Institute or which country is the best friend of Australia in Asia, until, I would say, five years ago, Japan and China are neck and neck. One third of people say Japan. The other one third say China. But the recent trajectory is more than 40% say Japan, by far the top. And China's number dropped to single, single digit. So that's my you know, observation number one. Observation number two is I would like to comment perseverance of Australia in this regard, it was under tremendous pressure. Attempt was made to crack Australia. Attempt was made to drive a wedge between Australia and its closest, most important ally, United States, and its special strategic partner, Japan, but Australia could succeed in hanging on. And now countries like Lithuania in Europe is following suit of Australia. Yesterday I was listening to Prime Minister Albanese's speech in Arboretum. He said, increasingly Australia's diplomacy is getting mature. If there is any sign of maturity in that regard, I think this Australia stood tall under tremendous pressure of economic coercion and intimidation. I think this is a one great example of maturity. Point number three, that said, trajectory to come to this point was not that easy. I've been keep on telling you know, my Aussie friends, watch out because Japan has been suffering from tyranny of proximity for so many decades. But typical answer coming from my Aussie counterpart is no worries. You say that because you're from Japan, Japan has colonial history, Japan has this issue of Senkaku with China. Don't bother us. And, uh, but after Australia, has been subjugated to economic coercion, intimidation. I think we are now in total sync after sharing values and sharing strategic interests. So this brings me to the fourth point, the importance of exchange of strategic assessments between Australia and Japan, between Australia and the United States. Incidentally, over the weekend, we came up with upgraded joint declaration on security cooperation between Japan and Australia to Prime Minister, Prime Minister Kishida, Prime Minister Albanese signed this document, landmark, epoch making. Over there, it highlights the importance of exchange of strategic assessments to the point that we are expected to consult on contingencies that may affect our sovereignty and regional security interests. This shows how far our two countries have come. Finally, my f- you know, fifth point is I think this public opinion demonstrates to the international community that wolf warrior diplomacy is not working. It's been serving to lose friends. Respected Chinese former ambassador here, Madam Hu Ying. About a year ago, she wrote an article in People's Daily. She is calling on China to become a country to be respected, trusted, and loved. If that is the case, is this the way to be selected by policymakers in Beijing? I think this public opinion is posing that question to China. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, Ambassador Yami. As you'll see, there is um, pretty remarkable alignment among the American, Japanese, and Australian uh, people around China, both the challenge but also the need to to exist (laughs) on the same planet. Let me turn it over to Jared and Victoria, who put in an enormous amount of work and thought on the survey to walk you through some of the key findings.
2: thanks so much for joining us this morning hope everyone has uh, recovered from budget nights appreciate you joining us today so want to discuss if I can figure out this what, what we want to do is not only present what we're doing today or what, what we've done for today but we also want to make this interactive so if I could ask folks to I know this is 2022. This is a very a millennial thing, maybe. But if we could scan this, and we're going to have you actually engage in some of our polling questions. Um, and so it's not just you having to suffer through me talking. All right. So some of you were with us in March earlier this year, where we uh, put out a Save of the United States report, um, or Sodus, as, as we like to call it, and we you know, It was uh, a tough time in, in the alliance at that point. The uh, U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. the uh, Russia had just invaded Ukraine. There seemed to be not a lot of political runway for the Biden administration to do very much after the bipartis- Bipartisan Infrastructure Act. And uh, one of our conclusions was the United States lacks the national unity that leaders of Australia's defense and diplomatic establishment view as critical ingredients of national defense. But since we made that, Assessment. I think the Biden administration would like to say that they had a pretty good summer. Now, the question—U.S. summer—I should clarify. The question, though, is, what does that mean for the midterms and what's going to happen with the midterms? So, in that summer, the the Biden administration passed the Inflation Reduction Act, the largest climate um, package in U.S. history, with 391 billion dollars in spending on cl- energy and climate change, gun control legislation, the Chips and Science Act about uh, revitalizing U.S. semiconductor manufacturing. Uh, and uh, research and developments. We also had the Veterans Health Bill Lord, they lowered prices on, on key issues like healthcare spending. Um, and then you had the Ukraine and the response to the Ukraine, which I think for the most part has been uh, pretty positive uh, or perceived to be positive. But with that said, you only need to look at opinion polls of President Biden and the fact that very few Democrats are actually campaigning with him to see that maybe it's not really translating into political success right now. Um, there's still a lot of work to be done. And actually, just in the last 24 hours, Gallup came out with um, a fascinating stat. And and the the, the quote is, Americans have as little optimism as they have had in any time in nearly three decades about young people's chances of having greater material success in life than their parents. That's 42%, and that's uh, the highest since 2011. Now, why is that relevant to Australia? Because US foreign policy starts at home you need to resource that you need the political um, support to make those tough choices what AUKUS resoundingly popular uh, in the US and Australia but you need this stuff is not easy not cheap and you need to start making some tough choices and the implications for allies like Australia and Japan are pretty significant Um, as Mike said it was 75 percent of Australians and 73, 72% of Japanese respondents said that the US midterm elections were somewhat to very important to them. That's not normal. <laughs> Jane Kosin, we we, our New York Times uh, visiting fellow, was just talking yesterday about how we, she wished that didn't have to be the case. She wished that foreigners wouldn't have to be so passionate about what's going on in America, but you only have to look at January six to see that the implications are, are pretty significant. And um, in my opinion, so much of what goes on with the US and Australia and the alliance it is the forcing function you may say is China, but the, the pace setting aspect of it is domestically. How are we going to resource office? How are we gonna make those tough choices? You need to have the political support to make those tough choices. Um, so our polling just so folks know, you can see this in the methodology, just so you understand that we didn't just uh, paint some nice pictures. These are actually uh, uh, statistically significant conclusions. So it was taken in from the 5th to 9th of September, uh, over 1,000 respondents. We did this with UGov, our partner on this, uh, in uh, 1,000 respondents in the US, Japan, and Australia. So what we want to do is quickly give a teaser, some of the, um, some of the responses from this. Great. Can you guys see that? Can you, on your phone, sorry, I should clarify. Yeah, that is the meta question. This is what we asked basically with our state of the United States in March. And this is why we're talking about domestic issues in the U.S. today, here in Australia, if I can. Now, this is the number one takeaway, and I want Victoria to speak to that.
3: Yeah, sure. So our number one finding is that uh, Americans have generally woken up to the security benefits of the alliance. So we found a record 58% of Americans say that their alliance with Australia makes the United States more secure. And that's a 14% increase from when we asked in December 2021, Um, uh, where only 44% said the same. And another standout finding for this, and it's not marked on the screen, is the number of Americans that said that the alliance makes no difference. So in December 2021, 52%, which is over half of Americans, said that their alliance with Australia made no difference to their security, whereas this year in September 2022, only 27%, so around a quarter, only 27% say the Australian alliance makes no difference to their security. And we can also see in the context of 2020 other alliance arrangements like NATO having sharp increases um, from 44% in December 2021 to over 70% in 2022. And especially Asian partners where USC surveys have shown historically security benef- their security benefits to the US are a little bit less clear to Americans. Japan here stands out. Japan rose 76% from up from less than 50% in December 2021. So we thought we'd ask... Uh, Our audience, again, another Slido question. So, phones at the ready um, for this QR code here. Um, We want to ask you, does your country's military alliance with the United States make your country more secure, less secure, or make no difference to your country's security? So, we also posed this question to our um, respondents in our survey. And Australian and Japanese respondents see the benefits of their security alliance with uh, with America, rather. Uh, we found 63% of Australians and 57% of Japanese respondents said that their alliance with the US makes them more secure. And you can flip to Let's the. See. Here we go. That's Quick polling. a nice Canberra audience. Thanks, yeah. Canberra. <laughs> <laughs> so, mostly in agreement with our polling there. Even more so. Just reassuring. There we go. So, here, yeah, we see 63% of. Um, Australians and 57% of Japanese respondents saying that their alliance with the United States makes them more secure. And importantly, these figures show a majority opinion of faith in US security, but that's not that the remaining 37 or 43% see the alliance as weakening their country. Only 12% of Australians and 8% of Japanese say that their alliance with the United States makes them less secure. And security is one thing, so we also asked um, whether the United States' presence in Asia does more harm or more good. And a plurality of respondents. Here we go, yeah, great. A plurality of respondents in both Australia and uh, Japan said the US was mostly helpful in Asia. And in Japan, that was resounding. 52% of respondents said the United States was mostly helpful, which is an increase from the levels we saw in 2015 and 2017 when we asked the same question in our research with the Asian Research Network. Um, And at that point, only 35% said the uh, US did more good. So a big increase to 52% this year. And in Australia, the response was a little bit closer between the three options, with 31% saying mostly helpful, but mostly harmful being close behind, with 28% of respondents sharing that view. And we can also see that there's some partisan difference on that topic. But the difference is Australian views are actually softening. So before we draw conclusions about Australians thinking that the US presence in Asia actually does more harm, uh, in 2015 and 2017, uh, you can see that uh, the number of uh, respondents saying that the US did more good is much lower than it is this year. So 31% this year said the US was mostly helpful, whereas the two years before that, it was less so. So why such warmth? Well, when it comes to regional alliances... We believe the impetus for the growing concern is to do with China and China's influence in the region. So, USSE polling in 2021 showed a dramatic increase, you can see it there on the screen, on the number of Americans describing uh, China as an enemy of the United States. And our polling in 2022 shows that that view largely persists. And when we asked uh, the same question about China's influence in the region, whether it did more harm or more good, um, the response was uh, much more strongly that China does more harm in Asia then good um so what do we do with this now I'll pass it over
2: now it's a question of operationalizing these these findings right operationalizing the support operationalizing the fact that there's records su- record support for alliances and also a, a, a steadying and i think a calcifying um view of china in the region as as uh, the ambassador said i think uh, wolf wolf, wolf Warrior diplomacy has not worked and so what we wanted to do is we provided some hypothetical situations, uh, one of which was Taiwan, how to respond to an invasion, uh, a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. And what we found really fascinating on this is the fact that uh, the, and you probably saw it, may may have seen it in the Guardian, but nearly half of Australians would be willing to send troops to Taiwan in an invasion. But what it's important to note is that it says sending troops to help the United States defend Taiwan. We did not give US um, respondents that answer. And so it um, may be unsurprising then that American responses to sending troops was a bit lower than that. But one, one could say that, that uh, Australia was a bit more hawkish in terms of defending Taiwan than the US was to a certain extent. As you can see here, just uh, in, in Australia is 46 percent agreeing, all respondents sending military troops, and in the U.S. it was uh, 33. Um, so uh, just to skip forward because we're a bit short on time, uh, you may hear a lot about um, trade and what, uh, what, how the U.S. is just not going to engage with it, as, as Mike said earlier. Um, this was one of my favorite results. Only 40 percent of Trump voters are actually against TPP. Again, I think this, in my view, is some, an opportunity for, um, for Americans and Australians to work with their members of Congress to talk about this more thoroughly and talk about the benefits, and also for political elites to really set the agenda. Um, and obviously, uh, Australians would be very keen to have um, the US joined TPP and we asked the Japanese and uh, Australians and Americans about other uh, hypothetical um, countries joining TPP and um, on the whole everyone is keen to have the US and um, South Korea and a few others, but I just I want to move forward because we're short on time um, because one of our next panelists has a hard stop at 10 a.m. So um, we'll be back on stage later, but for now I'll pass it to uh, Victoria for your conversation with our panelists. Yep.
3: Uh, yeah. Not sure if I'm just
2: Oh, we're doing some mic. All right, so that means I have more time. <laughs> Thank you. We, we have more time to go back to another hypothetical. And that was Solomon Islands. So we had Taiwan. That was one hypothetical. The other was uh, China building a base in the Solomon Islands. And um, Mike, Mike, uh, and uh, Victoria and I had some fun with this one. Um, we offered a, a pretty wide range of options. But what what I really find in both Taiwan, the Taiwan hypothetical, and the Solomon Islands hypothetical, is the fact that you can see. That calcification of views of of China and support for alliances, but you can also see there is not a lot of support for using military force against a base in Solomon Islands. There's there's some new ones here, right? And I think with Taiwan in particular, it's the Ukraine model. With this one, I don't think um, the publics have been in in the U.S. and in Australia. I don't think the publics have been primed in the way they on on Solomon Islands in the same way that they have on Taiwan. But I think. There is something we said about the fact that the most popular option uh, is economically isolating China and providing Taiwan with weapons in, in the Taiwan scenario. And then with the Solomon Islands, everyone agrees in the US and Australia about increasing diplomacy in the region and offering the Solomon Islands a better economic deal. And punishing the Solomon Islands economically, not popular. I think there's, there's something said about the carrot versus stick approach. All right, I think our panelists are mic'd up. Ready to go? Not sure if your mic is working, though.
3: Okay. Oh, here we go, that's okay. <laughs> jarring. Well, our panelists come up, uh, welcome everyone and thank you so much uh, personally from me for attending um, this panel discussion. I'm really excited to take a deeper dive into some of the national security implications for the Alliance agenda with experts on national security, as the people on my right here are today. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people um, on the land that we're on and acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, past, present, present and emerging. Um, Let's get straight into it. As we said, uh, we've got a hard stop at 10, so I Mm. want to imbue this conversation with as much um, detail and expertise as we can. So I'll introduce our panellists. Uh, Professor Peter Dean is the Director of Foreign Policy and Defence at the United States Study Centre. Uh, Previously, Professor Dean was the University of Western Australia's first Chair of Defence Studies and the Inaugural Director of the UWA Defence and Security Institute. He also served as a Pro Vice-Chancellor at UWA and held a number of senior roles at the Australian National University's College of Asia and Pacific and Strategic and Defence Studies Centre and he is currently a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Next we have Dr Mia Hammond-Array. Uh, she is the new Director of the Emerging Technology Program at the Studies Centre. And before joining us at the study Centre, uh, she had her work explored the uh, intersection of emerging technologies and security. And she was a senior analyst at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute and has published across several mainstream uh, media as well as think tanks and academic and military press. And finally, Dr. Peter Lee is a research fellow in the Foreign Policy and Defense Program at the United States Study Center. His work explores the security dynamics in the Indo-Pacific, including US foreign policy, middle powers, alliance politics, and regional cooperation. So to get straight into it, I wanna open with a question to all of our panel members. Um, So, what do each of you, as experts working in the national security space, um, what do you think is important to be watching in these midterm elections coming up? And I'll start with you, Peter.
4: So, so yeah, as Mike said earlier, this is an important consequential election. Um, And I think what we need to keep an eye on is, particularly in the foreign policy and defence space, what happens in both the Senate and the House races? So, looking at the polling data at the moment, it's, it's, we're still pretty unsure what's going to happen in the Senate. Um, I just got back from a trip to the United States, but it seems pretty clear as the trend is with most midterm elections. You know, the the party that one big at the the White House doesn't necessarily follow through at the midterms elections. So, if you do get a change in the in the House, um, the change of the Senate, leader, uh, sorry, the the committee leadership, and of course the ability for those particular Um, the Biden administration to get things through a Republican-controlled House will really change the dynamic that we have in Washington. Um, One of the things I think will be really crucial around that will be climate change. So as mentioned, uh, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act and many of the other elements behind the Biden administration on climate change is very strong. And we know that over 80% of Democratic voters, 82% of Biden voters, really support climate action. That's not so the case with uh, with the Republican Party. Uh, There is now a Republican uh, caucus around climate change action. It has about 70 members in it. Um, But it's going to give you more slow incremental change. And I think if we're going to get a lot of action on climate change, if there's a flip in the House, I think it will mainly be framed within the context of competition with China and uh, energy dependency on Russia. So I think that's something to really keep an eye out from the midterm elections to see how that direction goes.
5: Great, thanks. And I'll pose the same question down the line. Sure. Um, so I think just to take it a step back, one of the, so feedback there. Um, you know, that national security is about defining our values as a society and, you know, how we choose to protect them. And so it might seem really obvious, but it's really critical that we have a great understanding of, you know, the values um, of our key allies in such a critical time uh, in the region and in our alliance. And, you know, as you've kind of highlighted, and I'm sure will be foreshadowed uh, in the future panels, it's clear there are some deep divisions in the US on value issues that really relate to Australia. I think to extrapolate that out, given uh, many of the largest global challenges that we face, you know, Pete's just talked there about climate change, but if we also talk about emerging technology, you know, both innovation and regulation, um, these are issues that require global leadership, they require collaboration, and so having a potentially divided uh, ally can also be a really, a really big challenge in countering those national security threats. Absolutely, and Peter?
6: Um, It's a pleasure to be here. Um, My colleagues and I have actually just written an explainer, really sort of covering this issue about what it means for the foreign policy of the United States, and I think for us, the, the real touchpoint is how a congress might be seeking to constrain the Biden administration's focus on empowering and working with US allies and partners and so while we see bipartisan consensus in the congress on many of these issues such as Ukraine, um, China policy or trade um, there is that potential I think in the next 118th congress that we will see sort of strains on both sides of the Democratic and Republican parties um, to sort of constrain and hamper the Biden administration's work um, So I think in many of those respects, allies could become collateral damage, which is something that we're very closely tracking.
3: Excellent. And with that in mind, with the midterms context, I'd like to ask more about our headline finding again about alliances. And Pete, I mean, I only read a portion of your bio there, but I mean, we colloquially call you the alliance guy because (laughs) so much of your work has been focusing on the US-Australian relationship and how to improve that. So, I mean, I want to turn to you. Considering our findings here about alliances, what have you found most striking or most compelling um, when you read the report?
4: Yeah, look, I think there's some really fascinating details in this report, and the slide that we can see here at the moment, as you mentioned at the top line, you know, I've probably got three big headlines out, out of this, and this is the number one. You know, the rebounding popularity of alliances is really interesting, as we see they go from that kind of range there from. You know, the bottom bottom of the 40s to just under the 50s, right up into that kind of, you know, high 50s to, to mid-70s range. So that's a, a really significant turnaround. Um, you know, given what's happened in Ukraine, given what's happened around the world, I, you know, I expected when we put the poll in the field that we get a bit of a bump here. But I no way expected that we get kind of this level of, of change in sentiment. Um, and so in that respect, it's really heartening to see. But also, it's uh, in one sense, it's really obvious to see because alliances are generally formed. If you, if you strip away everything else about alliances, they're about aggregating power and They're about um, about threats that we worry about. So as the threat issue rises, so you you would like to see that, um, you know, if that's what is at the core of having an alliance is all about, then you would see that type of response. But I think just the level of response is really, really significant. Um, The second one I'd like to point out is the other bit of polling data which we do, which is the depth of support for the alliance between um, Australia and Japan. Um, I think that's um, particularly important. Um, You know, there's been, as the ambassador said, a very warm feeling from Australians towards Japan and the region. It's one of the most trusted countries from a number of significant polls over a long period of time. Um, but I didn't actually expect that we'd get this level of support from, uh, from Australian respondents in particular. Um, good timing for the poll to come out. Obviously, uh, you know the, the meeting in, in Western Australia, in Perth, the signing of a, a deepening security partnership. And as we ho- heard from Mike, uh, that in Japan itself, Australia is basically emerging as the number two security partner. But I was still was surprised that, again, that we get to that level of, of depth that you know, nearly 60% of Australians think that you know, a military alliance, a very specific use of language in that question there, would make our country uh, more secure. And the, the final one that, I, that I'll just highlight is about the support for the US military footprint in Australia, so we've had, a, you know, the long-term rotation now of, uh, of Marines in Darwin going back to the Obama administration, the Gillard government. Um, but, and that, that's gone very well. I think, you know, if we go back and look at the time, one of the great concerns about that was how that would go relative to U.S. military presence, like we've seen issues in Japan or in Korea or in, or in Europe around that. They've, they've slid into the community very well. I, I've visited Murph D on a number of occasions and certainly engaging with the Australian community in Darwin. They love having the Americans there. It's great for the economy. You know, it's, it provides a, a vibrant engagement um, into the community and it's been really successful. I know um, I, I was just in Indo-Pacific Command and I was spoken, speaking to the, the Marine Force commanders over there and they said it's... a. A very popular billet uh, for Marines to get onto to come to Australia. They they fight really hard to get onto the MIRF-D rotation, so that's gone exceptionally well. But yeah, the, the depth that there's actually genuine support there to increase the the size and um, and rotation of US forces through Australia. But it's just generally well received, and and I think again that's probably aligning as you mentioned with the growing concern about China in the region. And I think the other key thing, while Ukraine is a long way away from Australia, it's not, you know. Uh, you know, in our backyard, it does and has reminded all of us that even nuclear armed powers can use uh, military force and coercion to achieve their political ends. It's reminded us all of, of how large the scale of a conflict can be below that nuclear threshold. Um, and it's been really heartening to see the, that how NATO has responded to that. You know, we've got the expansion of NATO, so our allies are important. Um, and, of course, US military force presence in NATO countries... And that NATO security guarantee, I think, has very much constrained Russia's options in some areas as well. So I think that's uh, it's all reflective. And yet again, what I'm so ple- pleased about with opinion polling is uh, the, the Australian public, along with the Japanese public and the American public, are pretty switched on to international issues. Um, and it's something again that you know our, our politicians, our policy elites, needs to pay careful attention to because all policy options have to have that wealth spring, as Jared said before about, you know, starting with domestic support at home.
3: Yeah, and I mean, if I was to summarise so much of that content, it's that there's this warm and fuzzy feeling towards all these ally partners and, you know, we're all keen on cooperation and advancing together but at the same time that we see these warmths between the US Australian public and the US Japanese public we also see Australia wanting to pursue a more independent foreign policy and I think we have a statistic probably coming up on the screen soon but so what do you think is driving this trend that so many Australians think it's very important you can see there 44% of Australians thinking it's very important to pursue a foreign policy that's independent of global powers what's driving that
4: Look, I, I think this comes down to the notion question of sovereignty all, all nations one of the things that defines a nation state is is having a level of sovereignty and australians have always been keen while they've always been strongly supportive as opinion polls have shown for year after year after year of alliance with the united states of america it's always there's an element of that that's deeply ingrained into the australian political discussion as it is with most other u.s allies about maintaining a level of sovereignty so if we go back and look at the, you know, the 19 sort 1960s, of 70s and 80s when there was a, a huge discussion about the joint facilities, about Pine Gap, uh, about Northwest Cape, et cetera, um, we developed the concept you know, um, during particularly the Hawke administration and uh, um, Kim Beazley, as, as Mike mentioned before, of full knowledge and concurrency. these are joint facilities, they're not US bases on Australian soil, they're jointly run and manned between Australians and Americans and we get full knowledge and full concurrency of the information which helps maintain Australian sovereignty around these particular issues. And I think this question of sovereignty as we're seeing a changing regional strategic balance is becoming more and more heightened. Our new foreign minister, or not so new now, our foreign minister Penny Wong, has used this notion of um, having a strategic equilibrium in the region a lot. And behind that, she talks about the importance of that strategic libra- equilibrium is so states can have the ability to make sovereign decisions in that um, strategic environment. And I think that that wellspring comes from also Australia's perspective. We want to you know, be free from coercion or be able to resist you know, foreign interference from other states and have a sovereign ability to make our own decisions. But within the alliance context, also... Having that sovereign choice so it 's really about agency, and one of the interesting things about an independent foreign policy that does, that doesn 't disaggregate itself from the alliance because um, the Australian government made a conscious decision in one thousand nine hundred and fifty one to sign a treaty with the with United States and New Zealand, and every Australian government every single day since then continues to get up in the morning and make an independent sovereign decision to keep that alliance there is nothing stopping you know the the political class in Australia from changing their their mind. So this is a part of Australia's independent foreign policy. We choose to be every day in an alliance with the United States, like we choose to have partnerships with other countries like Japan or Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, who else needs to be. So it comes back to that agency. I think there's a bit of a heightened sense here in the public opinion polling, again, is that bit of that hedge against US domestic politics, as we heard. The values issues um, you know, that Mia raised, the, the questions, as, as Jared posed, about um, the state of US domestic politics. So while we enjoy all the wonderful benefits of that, the Australian government still wants to be able to go, well, you know, if US domestic politics goes in a way that we're uncomfortable with and the US president makes a decision we're uncomfortable with, we still have that sovereign right to go, actually, we're not wanting that... And what sort of got lost, I think, in the last 10 or 15 years or so in the alliance when we've had such close agreement on many things is that it has been times in the alliance that we've made significant differences, particularly over trade policy, but also over regional relations with the United States. We just haven't seen that for a while, so it's kind of been out of our short-term memory. But any good, strong alliance partnership has that resilience where we can agree to disagree on, um, on some issues. The key is that we've got to talk about them. Mm-hmm. We've got to be frank and upfront about them. And we have a very robust uh, uh, relationship um, with the United States. Said, I said, I just got back from a, from a trip to the US. And you, know, you get very frank and robust and open conversations um, from both Americans and Australians on this. And sometimes you agree to disagree or agree to work on that particular issue. So I think there's a lot playing into this. But I think, yeah, my headline is, it's it's about that sovereignty question, which everyone's key and important about. It's about that agency we want to have. But the big agency around the alliance is that we choose every day to continue that alliance with the United States. And that's a core part of our independent foreign policy that we do have.
3: And speaking of those choices, again, and Peter Lee, I might come to you on this. We polled again about uh, what Australians think about a larger US presence in Australia, our rotations in Darwin. And so I wonder, what do you think this polling suggests about public support for a larger US presence in Australia?
6: Yeah, it's a great question, Victoria. Um, I guess just to sort of take a step back, um, for those who follow the alliance, um, if you go back to the, end of the Cold War, there was a great debate in the US about becoming a normal nation. Think about people like Gene Kirkpatrick or Pat Buchanan. We talked about the US becoming a normal nation for normal times. And I think we saw that with President Trump in seeking to withdraw US troops from Germany. So that debate within the US continues about the appropriate level of its force posture and presence around the world. I think the flip side of that is the appetite amongst allies for hosting US forces, whether on a rotational or permanent basis. And so really with this question that I wanted to include in the survey was what is the Australian public's attitude and appetite for hosting US presence and what is the appropriate number of that? And so quite a lot of polls that have been around in the last few years have you know, generally sort of asked, you know, are you in favour of US force presence in Australia? And generally it's very positive. Uh, what I wanted to ask for our survey um, in this time was really what that number was um, and the number of 2,500 and whether the public were for or against that. And so, as you can see, um, hopefully, if you can get um, my poll up, um, we found that about 45% of people were supportive of the 2,500 US Marine for, uh, rotational presence in Darwin. Um, about 27% supported an increase of that. Um, and actually, 40% of coalition voters uh, wanted an increase from 2,500. Um, so, I think unpacking that sort of broad 60 to 70% range who support a US military presence in Australia. We actually find that about 45% are happy with where we are today um, after a decade. Um, I I thought it was interesting to get the Japanese perspective on this to say what would be a comparable numerical threshold for US military presence. And so, as you know, Japan hosts about 55,000 US forces. Um, In the Japanese figure, it had about 45% support for the status quo of 55,000 US soldiers. Uh, 23% of the Japanese public wanted a reduction of the US force presence and only 5% wanted an increase. So in Japan, that number of 55,000 is broadly in the right vicinity. I think there is scope there for Australia to go further in terms of hosting US forces, but there are limits there that we need to start debating about how many is actually going to be enough.
3: That's a great answer. Um, Mia, my turn to you. We polled uh, about China and you know, one of our things was When we found that statistic in 2021, that huge increase, we had to keep checking our numbers being like, did we conduct this survey wrong? Like, it's so rare to see such a sharp increase in... Um, public sentiment in that way in our polling Um, but I think that speaks to this particular geopolitical environment that we are in so considering this context why do you think such a large percentage of um, oh actually we have a statistic coming up but we have um, findings that a significant number of Australians Japanese and US want to collaborate more closely on tech cooperation and so in this particular context why do you think there's such uh, an appetite for this kind of level of cooperation between our countries on emerging tech
5: yeah, thanks Victoria. It is a great question. Um, and I wanted to thank the ambassador also for raising, uh, you know, Australia's position in this geopolitical environment and the the broad scale of uh, what the recent um, US national security strategy called statecraft and, you know, modernizing our statecraft. And if we look at the, the kind of uh, experiences Australia has had, we're looking, as you said, on economic coercion, but also foreign interference and also uh, tech-enabled information influence, say, recently in the Solomon Islands and so on. So, I mean, in terms of the geopolitical environment, I wanna then step through just, I guess, why technology collaboration might be seen as so significant by those publics. Um, You know, It's really obvious, but technology is an essential and critical service. We're all relying on technology from an individual level, and from a personal perspective, it's impossible to avoid emerging technologies in our lives. From a national security perspective, you know, as you can see, the technologies um, listed in the poll, artificial intelligence, uh, quantum computing, and semiconductor manufacturing are are areas that we've already identified as critical to our national security um, and and worth uh, protecting so when we look talk through this slide here um, you can see that strong support only three to six percent across all three nations expressed any reservations about collaborating with one another to develop these technologies and over 70% support that collaboration what's really interesting here is that we didn't actually differentiate between you know nation-state collaboration like government military intelligence and so on or commercial or you know personal and so what's really interesting is I think this is a reflection of just that pervasiveness of technology in our individual lives and a recognition of how critical it is to our economic success, uh, to our military success, both as individual nation-states but then obviously as a collective. I guess the results don't seem that surprising when you start to think about the role of technology uh, across all of those vectors. Um, and I think w- what will be really exciting going forward is getting a deeper and more nuanced understanding um, of how the consumer uh, business and government uh, collaboration will work. I think you know, uh, talking about the, the threat that we're currently in and the process of decoupling, we w- we, we really need to understand the, the public sentiment. And that's why this polling is so exciting because it actually shows for the first time, I think, the way that uh, Australians, Americans and Japanese feel about collaborating on such a critical national issue, which, you know, going to Peter's point earlier about sovereignty, they're traditionally areas which have been seen as, you know, nation-state uh, in isolation and we're starting to see much much stronger public support as we continue to decouple the consumer business and government costs for uh, decoupling are going to increase and so it's critical that we understand public support for that collaboration to, to try and mitigate some of the uh, economic and uh, tech costs that we're going to experience from decoupling
3: Yeah. Really interesting findings on tech, and obviously a very important issue going forward. Um, And it's good to see as well, I mean, it's not quite charted there, but we found that cooperation was quite bipartisan so uh, Australian uh, Japanese and American regardless of party affiliation all were very on board with this cooperation but Pete as you were saying in your uh, opening about what to watch at the midterms um, not all of this is so guaranteed in America there's quite a lot of friction between parties and there's among many of the issues in the US one of the most stark contrasts between Biden and Trump voters is on um, collaboration on climate change and I think going forward, how does Australia, considering its own wants to act on climate change and to engage in this space, how do we uh, collaborate and cooperate with an ally where the partisan difference in the leadership of the Congress or of the, of the White House makes such a difference to that kind of policy agenda there? How can we work with the US when there's such a stark contrast between the two parties?
4: Well, yeah, and I, and I think it's, it's wise to remember that uh, not that long ago, only a few months ago, we were still very much bitterly divided within our own community um, around this. And, it, and it's interesting to see that many argue that the, ele- the change of government in Australia sort of end the sort of climate wars. And I said, I think we've seen it. So far, um, that sort of kind of has happened. You know, the, the Teal Independents have had a significant impact on the parliamentary makeup you know, the new leader of the opposition has been, I think, more forward-leaning when it comes to climate change. But I think what's... The the wellspring here is the the community engagement. Now, we do know Trump voters are nowhere near as engaged as uh, Biden voters, but overall in the United States, we're still looking at a significant number of people who believe in climate change and want to collaborate on climate change. And I think this is a really um, strong point. There's, There's strong support for greater collaboration, and that's because global change, is, uh, climate change, is not just a domestic issue; it's an international issue. And what I think is really important about this um, is also that it pushes collaboration into a different part of the security realm. So traditionally, the alliance is very much about that hard end security stuff. It's about the sort of military defence, you know, buying fighter jets, building nuclear-powered submarines, that type of stuff. Climate security is a really critical element of our security relationship. And if you ask young people, in Australia in particular, about where they think the Alliance should work more closely on, overwhelmingly it is on this climate issue, Um, I've done a series of roundtables with young emerging leaders in Australia now over about a four-year period, about 150 of them. Each of these groups worked independently. I didn't tell them what the other group was doing. Every single one of those groups put climate change as the number one issue of where the alliance should collaborate on. And interestingly enough, I've got another report that will come out through USSC um, in first week of December of this year, which goes beyond the sort of polling data into focus groups with the Australian community. And they also say the same thing that you know, there's great military hard power cooperation in Australia, but there's so much more opportunity in this relationship, particularly in climate and clean energy technology, economic cooperation and people-to-people cooperation. And what we do have on that divide thing is we do have 82% of Biden voters who want to do more and 62% of Labor voters want to do more. So at the moment, while we've got the two executive branches aligned, I think there's a real opportunity um, to, to do more on this particular area. And, you know, we're about to go into an OSMIN, hopefully sometime before the end of this year. You know, that's uh, almost sort of the the annual high point event of the alliance, but it is a two plus two foreign and defence ministers um, meeting. I think we really need to start to look at what other kind of bilateral cooperation can we get, you know, getting Chris Bowen, getting Tanya Plibersek, getting the, um, you know, even people like Jason Clare, the education minister and, um, you know, uh, the finance and, and uh, treasurer involved in equivalent meetings with the US because there's so much more collaboration I think we can do in those spaces. And overwhelmingly, our publics want that. They see, they see a much more sort of a broader and expansive part of the, the agenda. Now, as you said, given as that said, what the midterm election says to us will really start to impact on that. Congress can put some handbrakes on the executive in the United States about doing that. But it's about progressing that, I think, more broadly. And we do know that we don't know, my guess will be that a Republican-controlled House will not put a complete handbrake on climate change issues. As I said earlier, if you frame this around competition on clean energy, both technology and clean energy um, economy with China, there's plenty of room and scope for for that competition um, area to be leveraged. We want to be more energy independent, particularly Europe um, and parts of the world from Russia, and parts of the Middle East um, as well. So there's a huge amount of opportunities in this climate change space. It'll be about framing it, and it'll be about setting our expectations if it's a Republican-controlled Congress, because they'll do things, I think, more incrementally. Um, But as I mentioned, the Conservative Climate Caucus in the United States and the Republican Party was set up in 2021. It's already got 74 members. Um, So it's slow, but climate change action will still happen, I think. And it's the two executives that can really start to push that forward and get that up into a broader stance.
3: Great. Um, going back to some hard security stuff, uh, we, we know there's <coughs> a huge amount of cooperation already. Australia and the US have a history of cooperating on this front, but... Um, A particularly historic moment on this is uh, the announcement of AUKUS last year. And so, uh, and again, and into this year, it's one of the things we get asked about most in national security spaces is what's happening with AUKUS. Um, It constantly comes up in our conversation. So, Peter Lee, I'd love to ask you, we asked um, our respondents a number of different questions. Possibilities for AUKUS, and one of them was we wanted to see uh, whether or not Australians, Americans and Japanese thought it was a good idea for Australians to have nuclear submarines. And so uh, based on this data here, Peter, do you think the public understands what AUKUS is? Um, and do you think uh, that's feeding into the, the results that we're seeing here?
6: Well, I mean, I've studied AUKUS ever since it came out, and there are days when even I'm not sure if I understand AUKUS. Um, but I think, you know, personally when I saw this poll, I was most surprised by um, the number of CDP supporters in Japan who actually support AUKUS, which for anyone who tracks Japanese politics is quite an interesting finding in itself, I think. I think obviously AUKUS is much better understood um, in Australia than it is in the US and Japanese publics, obviously because it affects us most directly. And we've had the most debate about it here, even though we haven't had as much um, information about what AUKUS is and how it's tracking of the last year. Um, I think fundamentally the ideas of support there, um, it's easy to support an abstract idea. Uh, And I think this is the point I want to drive home today, that uh, we haven't had tangible costs, tangible burdens around AUKUS yet. Um, And so at that level, it's quite easy to say, yes, I like that idea, Um, the idea of nuclear powered submarines or the idea of advanced capability cooperation. I think the rubber hits the road when we start to get in next year and, and the years going forward we see how much this is actually going to cost, who it's going to affect, how it's going to affect workforces, which districts in the US and Australia it's going to actually have a direct effect on, how it's going to affect our sovereignty. So I think within the US it's quite interesting to see that there is bipartisan consensus um, on AUKUS, Uh, but I think it's probably more interesting to look at how um, a future Republican-led administration, not just in the Congress, but um, at the executive, um, could take a different track to AUKUS, Trump administration and so forth and I think the question for us in Australia is um, If a future US administration places onerous demands on AUKUS, um, how would Australian public sentiment shift in response? Um, till now the Australian public don't see the direct costs um, that will come with this So I think that's something very much to keep an eye on I think going forward
3: Yeah, great and I think um you know, like you say, it's very easy to support an abstract idea and we did poll on a number of these, um, one of them being, you know, ORCA should be expanded to include Japan, ORCA should be expanded to include South Korea. I always find it interesting that the most reticence to include Japan in the AUKUS agreements comes from Japanese respondents themselves. Um, but I mean, we can see here that there seems to be enough public support in uh, any kind of AUKUS arrangement, be it expanding it, uh, Australia having nuclear submarines, uh, considering you know talented visa programs. There's a lot of public support here. Perhaps it is that we don't yet have these onerous demands, but maybe if we can remain on a positive note, Peter, what would you like to see in the agreement going forward?
6: No, I think absolutely the advanced capabilities pillar of AUKUS is going to be really important. I think it's where we can start to see tangible progress. Um, going back to my point that when it's an abstract idea, it's hard to um, question or challenge it. But I think once we start seeing actual deliverables um, on any of these issues, the public will start to see, um, to actually judge AUKUS and the progress that it's making. I think similarly, um, US officials and senior officials have already talked about including and expanding AUKUS to work with Japan, with New Zealand, and potentially South Korea down the line. So I think these are areas where expansion and inclusion are very important to showing that AUKUS is not an exclusive grouping in any sense. I think the opinion polling shows that the public is open to how we want to mold and transform and update AUKUS going forward.
3: Yeah, really interesting. Mia, I might turn to you. We've seen movement in the emerging technology space of Australia and the US trying to decouple their technologies from China. And I think a a point that I'm picking up on here is that when it gets down to the nitty-gritty details... Um, there's a lot more confusion and uncertainty. And so we can see that these decisions most recently to try and decouple um, technology, that's broadly happening at the executive and agency level. But what about consumers and businesses and citizens? I mean, we've polled on this, how much do you trust technology from the US versus how much do you trust technology on China, for example, or your willingness to download an app from China or from an American firm. Um, What do you think this kind of polling and the sentiments that we're seeing here, what does that indicate from citizens and businesses and the community at large in terms of um, disassociating our technology from Chinese firms?
5: It is a great question. Um, I, I want to kind of just echo your comments here about how easy it is to say you will or won't do something um, when you're not actually faced with that practical challenge. Um, I did try to, to cross-reference the TikTok downloads with a number of under 30s who were going to, and I'm not a mass major, sorry, Mike, so uh, we'll have to leave that to someone else, but I think you you are seeing these decisions being made uh you know at the executive level they are reflective of you know intelligence and strategic assessments in in australia in china in uh, sorry in australia in the us in the uk um and other countries about the threat that some of these uh technologies are posing or the lack of um the absence of those technologies would pose uh for our nation so I, i don't think that that is out of step the threat is out of step um the response, sorry, is out of threat with the step. But I I would say, um, I think it's probably a bit too early to assess the significance of those changes yet uh, and and to be able to understand whether that impact has had, you know, whether those decisions have had the impact that we hope. And we may never be able to assess that. Um, You know, that may be an unknown, Uh, I guess, you know, this this polling is really exciting in some ways because it's the first time we've seen uh, the way the way that we feel about technology and the lineage of technology and what that might mean for individuals uh, and for for businesses. I think it's really interesting that it shows uh, quite clearly here that uh, there are fairly high levels of concern about downloading Chinese technology, uh, particularly applications. I would. Note that uh, there seems to be an unwillingness of older respondents to download any applications. So I mean, <laughs> take that for what it is. Uh, it, it shows there's a, uh, there's a much higher level of distrust of technology from China versus the US. Uh, and uh, not shown in this particular poll, but in, in one of the other poll's uh, questions that you've asked. The, there's really high levels of support, uh, I think, across all three countries for maintaining and even increasing restrictions on Chinese tech into Australia. Uh, and, and that's also a really interesting uh, outcome. Another poll, another question in this poll shows uh, Australians as well as US and Japanese uh, respondents were willing to pay considerably more for technology not from China. And again, I think this really indicates. Uh, a willingness to to better understand our tech lineage. You know, government consumers um, and businesses, they want assurance that the hardware and the software that they're purchasing is effective, safe, and built by a trusted entity. And I think this really comes back to that tech collaboration. And, you know, uh, as Pete said, we have really considered uh, the alliance in such a military perspective, but actually broadening this alliance out, we're really talking about collaboration in new areas. And technology shows here uh, that we're really interested in collaborating in technology. We need to collaborate in order to actually be able to decouple and to to mitigate, you know, that diversifying supply chain, diversifying uh, our trade relationships too, to counter the impact and the costs of that decoupling. Uh, so I think these are really exciting figures and I can't wait to explore them more.
4: Can, I, can i add something so yeah like th- that's a really fascinating point and uh, i think what some of the data shows particularly with the rise of people's concerns about china and obviously russia given what's happened in ukraine is we kind of not we well we know what the alliance is against but a lot of the work that i've done is said getting beyond the polling data with the focus groups people can't really tell you what the alliance is for and I think this comes to me as point is, it's a changing society. It's a changing um, security landscape. We've got these broader areas now of competition in technology and the critical importance of technology. I mean, we're all seeing the impact of, of cyber events and our lives, I mean, growing and growing. We, you know, Yet another one in the last week where a major firm has been hit by a cyber attack. Um, so it's about you know reframing the alliance and contemporising the alliance and i think that's a really important part that tech is a really critical component, component of that, as is climate change as is some other areas because as generations change as well you know the, their interests and what they see is critical and if the you know if the relationships don't move with them um, and with the events and the issues at the time, it, it people start to wonder what it's for and where it's going. So we kind of know what it's... Um, the public is telling us we know what it's a, it's against. We know the threats and the concerns we have. We're, here's a range of raft of issues we think are really important. And I think the question for the public then to our political class is do those things line up? If we're saying all these key things, critical emerging technology, climate change, you know, as well as, you know... Military basing and stuff are all of this relevant importance. How does, how does that get packaged together and how do we understand how the alliance is being operationalised in that respect?
3: Yeah, and getting getting the public on board with that agenda as well is just another challenge. And I think what was interesting about the public opinion findings that we had, and we broke them down by age, they're not in this report, but as Mike um, foreshadowed, we're releasing them over time. One of the things about the age was that we found um, Americans and Australians, younger ones, 18 to 34, you were very against downloading a ch- an app owned by China. But, I mean, we also see that demographic very engrossed in TikTok. It's one of those things where it's like, oh, TikTok, 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 TikTok is owned by China. Oh, that's no good. Oh, well, keep scrolling. just like you know so in terms of actually materializing that as a personal sacrifice, be that not downloading an app or be that paying a higher price premium for a phone not made in China, which is another um, polling finding you can find in our report. I guess that yeah, it does reveal itself um, slightly differently. Um, Mia, to pick up on another point that you raised, you know, you said that we need to have closer collaboration in order to decouple, and again, we have that slide on the screen here, really reassuring findings about the level of appetite for collaboration. Um, so I guess, again, optimistically, blue sky thinking, if we could collaborate on any front, you know, what would you be encouraging our countries to be pursuing together? How can we be working together to, I mean, advance common objectives in this tech space?
5: Yeah, such a great question. (laughs) Um... I think new technologies are at their most awe-inspiring when they're solving real problems that people face every day and they're solving those problems at scale. Um, I'd love to see cooperation on on the most pressing issues that nation-states face and combating climate change using new technologies has to be up there. Um, I think countering foreign and political interference, uh, particularly, uh, you know, automated big data kind of information influence... You can see most recently reporting in the solomon islands but you know it's happening everywhere misinformation and disinformation in 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 western democracies but also in the pacific you know in in china in japan in russia like we're seeing the control of the information environment and so we really need to start to understand how we can collaborate to create a more secure and trusted information environment Um, I guess that brings me to the point of creating technologies that bring us together as a society rather than divide us. Clearly, though, we also need to continue to collaborate on issues like advanced capabilities on our you know, military and intelligence uh, technology. We can't avoid that, but I, th- I do think that focusing on the issue, uh, you know, like the most pressing issues that we face as social issues will also help to make us more resilient, to make us more secure as nations. Um, I think in Australia, collaboration on technologies that create new economic opportunities for Australians, particularly in rural and regional areas, is significant. And I'd love, I'd absolutely love to see global leadership coming from the US on regulating technologies in a way that enable innovation, but also protect us and keep us safe. You know, as Peter mentioned, digital safety, cyber resilience, securing that information environment and infrastructure in our region, but globally. And we, we need to start to see more leadership. I mean, yes, things are coming out, but we actually need to continue to drive that because in so many ways, the digital landscape is the scaffold of our society. Society, and we need to protect that.
3: Yeah, great, a greater role for US leadership in technology. Um... I guess, uh, turning back to the midterms, they're so close now. I feel like we've been talking about it all year. I mean, Jane was saying that, you know, she wished Alliance partners didn't look so closely at the midterm elections. I feel like this year's also been exceptional in that we've been talking about the midterm since at least February. It's been one of those things that's not just a November thought. It's been tracking all year. So, I mean, now with them so close, and we've seen lots of developments come about over the year, I mean, regardless of the midterm result. What should, be, what should our two countries be prioritising in the next two years of the Biden administration? I mean, we know that, um, at least for now, the Biden administration has, or the Democrats have a triple hold of the executive, the House and the Senate. If that is to continue, if it's not, if we have a split, um, you know, split House, split Senate, um, you know, what is it that we can be working together um, with Biden in the White House over the next two years? And I might actually open this to all our panellists. So we'll start with you, Peter.
4: So I, I'm going to go back to my roots. I've spoken about climate security and I've spoken about, um, you know, a few other things and, and me has hit the nail on the head on a, on a whole range of things here. And I'm going to slide back into into what Peter's been talking about, which is about the the more hard end of the defence part because that's what, ultimately that's what I am. I'm a defence scholar. And I have to point out AUKUS here. So AUKUS is, uh, you know took everybody's by surprise when it happened it has to have been the best kept secret in Australian you know governmental history like the fact that nothing of this leaked out until I think about you know there was a the first whispers only a few hours before the um that something big was going to happen but no one knew what it, what it was going to be and it landed with this enormous sort of splash you know we had this tripartite link up you know television conference it went for about seven or nine minutes or or whatever and then it's kind of everyone's been left with oh oh okay and it's sort of been very focused on nuclear powered submarines um that has been a really you know that captured headlines around the world if you know if you ask people if you say AUKUS and ask them to say one word in response it would probably be submarines right or nuclear nuclear powered submarines if they've got a couple of words um but there's this pillar two part of AUKUS as well that we need to consider but holistically I think with AUKUS we need a much better public information campaign um you know i think from all three governments but you know to, to look at australia for instance um you know we've had no statement to parliament on this we've had one press conference we've had most of the information has been you know after there's been orcas meetings there's been a white house release on, on what the agenda is um and that type of stuff but In this poll and in some other work that I've done, there's, as Peter said, there's not a lot of knowledge about AUKUS out there. So people are quite unsure where this fits in. And you have to have the public on site, as we said, to get good policy outcomes. So there's got to be much more of a focus on that, but that's also important to counter the misinformation campaign. So we saw a very active misinformation campaign where certain states around the world were trying to argue to countries in Southeast Asia and other parts of the world that, well, this is really about Australia getting nuclear weapons, or this is really about nuclear-armed submarines, not nuclear-powered submarines, and that's just simply not the case. I mean, one of the things we did in the FPD team a little while ago about AUKUS at the anniversary was put out, you know, this is what it is and this is what it's not, because there was a lot of misinformation out there about what it actually is. Um, so, we've got to bring broad support. Now, the government has indicated that there'll be a, you know, there'll be a report, Jonathan Mead's report, will go to the Australian government um, in uh, March of next year. That's based on a very close collaboration with the other countries. Um, and so, there'll be a big announcement sometime around March or April, right, about whether the future of this submarine enterprise. And that's a big ticket, big dollar figure announcement. You know, we were looking at $100 billion for, you know, non-nuclear-powered submarines. God only knows what uh, Admiral Mead's going to come up with the number on. Mm-hmm. And that's particularly hard because the US are, and the UK can't actually tell you what the cost is of, in, of one nuclear-powered submarine because they don't work that way. You know, the US work on a continuous build process and, and the British do a version of that as well. So they can't actually give you a dollar figure on an individual submarine, let alone if you're going to have to potentially build all the infrastructure in Australia to go along with it. So that'll make a big splash but then it's going to be a very long, slow burn, right? This submarine is going to stay submerged for a very long time. It gets built before it pops up. It could be 10 or 20 years before we see one of these in service. Who knows what the government's going to come up with um, in this priority? So in the meantime, we're all going to be talking about Pillar 2 of AUKUS, and that's going to be where the rubber is going to hit the road in the short-term military capabilities. That is where, you know, we'll potentially get some of these new advanced technologies into the hands of the military and the warfighters to increase our deterrence efforts, you know, and, and to increase our military capabilities. Um, and we need some quick wins on this. So we've got sort of eight broad areas. We, even, we know, as Peter says, some things we know and some things we don't know. What we do know is in some of those areas they're making more progress <laughs> than others. But we, you know, I think we'll really see a, a big tick mark when there is the first capability fielded, um, you know, whether it's a, a hypersonic weapon, whether it's an, uh, a, an undersea drone, whether it's, you know, a, a, an extra layer of cyber defence or whatever it might be, when we see that actually take effect, I think people will grasp that concept. And I think there's also a real opportunity here with what Mia was saying, because these are the same areas, things like quantum computing and artificial intelligence, uh, AUKUS areas, as well as general tech areas of competition... And the thing that strikes me about this is, you know, once upon a time in the Cold War, much of the technology that that was developed through the militaries then would filter down, like, the internet into into our lives. Now, it's more like the military going, well, look at how fast civil society is going. How can we turn that into a military capability, the dual-use technology? So, I think there's an opportunity for real synergy... You know, um, and it's one of the things Mia and I are doing together is between that kind of AUKUS part of, say, AI and quantum and the general society part of AI and quantum. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, and this brings also in more broadly the university sector. Um,
5: and the so, commercial and sector. And the commercial
4: mm-hmm. sector. So what I'm, you know, really hoping you can also see is out of AUKUS, but also more broadly with countries like um, Japan and other European countries and New Zealand and many others is that we can really advance that technical collaboration that Mia was talking about. So AUKUS has to be a success because we all know what happens uh, in public diplomacy. You come up with a big idea, it gets lots of coverage, and unless it's seen as kicking goals, we'll lose that sort of public interest, we'll lose the political interest and then it could disappear into this kind of bureaucratic system of lots of meetings with not a lot of outcomes. And then if you lose interest, and you know what it's like as an administration in the United States comes and goes, or the House or Senate changes, and if there's not as much interest and the next shiny thing comes along, um, that's the real concern. But if it's seen as tangible, the public knows what it's about, and it's seen as having effects, it will have a life of its own in terms of that momentum. And I think it's really critical that it does have that momentum and life as its own so it's a really important initiative.
5: And Peter just to add to that you know we may not actually see many of the AUKUS outcomes because when you're talking about advanced capabilities and intelligence exchange they may not be visible to the public but one of the things that will be is a very vibrant private sector exchange and that's one of the ways that we can start to develop that and understand what's actually happening in AUKUS with such limited information.
3: That's it, yeah, and bringing along public support, as we've been saying, is just so important. I think that's one of the misconceptions about AUKUS that at I least I have anecdotally in my circles is it's all about the aukus raucus. Everyone knows that the AUKUS agreement just annoyed the French, and that's about the extent of public knowledge. So, yeah, including these public information campaigns and also avoiding misinformation. We have more data on misinformation in our report. It's at the back end. Um, and you can see Australian, Japanese and American publics rank misinformation as one of the most highest concerns about uh, the future of the US.
4: If I can have a one finger on this, I was watching, um, you know, budgetary... Um Coverage yesterday and Christopher Pine was on ABC and he and he was talking about some areas of the budget that need more attention. And he said, What you've got to do as a politician is you've got to talk about an issue endlessly until you're so sick of it you're literally physically vomiting. And as a politician, when you're at the point of physically vomiting, you probably know the, f- the public's finally gone, Oh yeah, we know about that thing now. <laughs> and you know, we haven't had the you know, we, I don't think we're yet to have someone at that point in any of the three countries on AUKUS where they're so sick of talking about it. You know, so maybe that's what we've got to take a bit of. Christopher Pine's advice. (laughs) I
3: hope to avoid uh, any more vomiting today. That would be as we go on about these issues. Um, But maybe maybe I'll turn to you. In terms of the alliance for the next few years, what should we be prioritising?
5: I won't harbour the point, but climate change. Um, I I really think that, uh, you know, as I alluded to earlier, that the information environment and uh, seeing global leadership on improving the stability and... uh, veracity uh, and being able to trust, I guess, the information environment and critical infrastructure Globally, but especially in our region at such a critical time. You know, when we talk about the recent um, breaches, data breaches, of which I think are we up to three in the last two weeks, I mean, I can't keep count, but they're really going apace. And we we need to start to understand digital safety and cyber resilience, not just from a nation state perspective. We actually need to understand those kind of data flows globally and how how we might begin to secure that. So I really think regulating technology And I would say, look, you need to do this in a way that both enables innovation and creates security and safety um, for individuals and nations. And that's an incredibly hard ask, like these are technologies, you know, as um, Pete kind of mentioned, traditionally we've seen these kind of technologies coming from defence and trickling down into society. And now we're seeing th- these technologies have grown up in the, in, uh, the commercial sector and they are s- outstripped our capacity to regulate them. And so we're now catching up and we'll do that. I'm confident that we'll do that. But understanding the role of data sets and critical data sets. Um, You know, the Optus breach exposed for us how easy it is to have almost population-sized data sets released um, or potentially released. And I think we really need to understand what what, uh, protecting critical data sets might look like. And I'd love to see um, leadership from the US in that space, also the cyber uh, leadership and, of course, Intel collaboration on uh, advanced capabilities.
3: And Peter, if you could bring us home, what should sure. the US and Australian relationship be doing in the next two years?
6: I think just very quickly at AUKUS, because Pete's already covered it, just next year and the year after, we need to very quickly figure out the costs of this for the Australian public, um, but also that we ensure that AUKUS proceeds in a way that, ensure, that protects Australian sovereignty and our decision-making going forward. I think, as you recall, last year, a lot of the criticism of AUKUS was that this would somehow compromise Australia's national sovereignty. And the way our ability to choose. So I think ensuring that that is preserved going forward is absolutely crucial. And I think on the other aspect of the bilateral, the enhanced force posture initiatives, I think this year is a decade since the first U.S. Marines landed in Darwin. Um, And so the question going forward, I think, is the north of Australia is going to play a much more important role in U.S. regional strategy in the years to come. And we need to very much have an honest and frank negotiation with the United States about how much of a burden we want to have, um, who is going to bear that burden in Australia, which communities will be hosting these US forces. I imagine it's going to be a lot more than 2,500 in a decade. Um, And so I think the question really is, we have done this before. And I want to end on this point that my my boss is a historian, so I always talk to him about the Australia-US alliance in, in context. At the height of the Second World War, Australia hosted 150,000 US forces in this country. That is what we talk about when we say strategic urgency, the risk of conflict, You know, 150,000 soldiers, almost a million US soldiers pass through Australia. Um, that is what a high burden looks like, but we chose that and we did that. So I think we need to have discussions about how much we want to host, what kinds of capabilities we want to host in Australia, um, and ensure that the Australian public comes along with us in that discussion.
3: Great. And, uh, yeah, again, uh, this warm and fuzzy feeling between our alliances and our countries, hopefully that helps us have these honest and frank conversations that we need to be having. Um, I think we are running out of time swiftly, so I'd like to, um, yeah, if you could join me in thanking our panellists for such an intriguing discussion. Um, And there's... Plenty more findings coming from our report, um, both in the national security space and in uh, the domestic politics space. So stick around, and I will hand over to Mike.
0: Um, Thanks very much, Victoria. That was exactly what we wanted to do with the survey data, is to think through not what the survey results predict will happen in policy, but what it tells us about the political and um, strategic and ideological landscape. Um, And so we will be rolling out a series, actually, of more in-depth working papers that use the survey results or pieces of them um, to, to uh, make recommendations uh, on trade, technology, defense. And just to be clear, Peter Lee and the US Studies Center are not proposing that Australia host 100,000 US troops <laughs> and that a million troops pass through Australia, although you could easily find a million members of the US military who would like to. <laughs> um, so we're going to try to t- turn this into um, uh, solutions and ideas for the alliance. We'll take uh, uh, a break until 10:15. Um, because we're a very bicultural organization, we're going to have both a coffee break and a tea break, um, and then we'll come back. and Jane Costen will join us from the New York Times um, to talk about what this moment means in the American uh, political um, uh, life and uh, and zeitgeist. So, thank you all very, very much. See you back in fifteen minutes.